You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check them out. Public theology is in the uh, discussion among evangelicals today a good bit, with some uh, insisting on it's something that it needs to be done, and I even saw one guy questioning whether public theology is actually just a means of capitulating to culture, uh, coming to agreement with what's wrong in culture rather than prophetically standing uh, for what God's Word might tell us to have to say to culture. So I'm going to be talking to uh, a longtime friend and returning guest, actually, uh, all the way back to season one or two. Bruce Ashford joins me again today, and uh, we're going to be talking about what it means to do public theology well. So this is more than just a definition and more than just him talking about theology. It's how we engage uh, around issues of theology or issues uh, in which we as Christians believe the scriptures have something to say. How do we do that in the public square well? So in the first half, we talk about a couple of specific examples, and in the second half of our episode today, we talk uh, at length about this issue of Christian nationalism and how we can deal with that in the public square as well. Well, there's a lot of talk uh, in today's kind of culture uh, on the evangelical Christian side of things about public theology and what it is and what it means and what it ain't, and so my guest today is a public theologian, and he's a longtime friend. Uh, this is Bruce Ashford. He uh, lives in, are you in like Winston-Salem or somewhere, or Raleigh-Durham or something like that? I'm, yeah, I'm in Wake Forest, North Carolina, which uh, is on the border, uh, northern border of Raleigh. Okay. Um, so you're, you're a, and I don't like, this is not like blowing smoke, and I know you're going to laugh when I say this, but I want everybody to know that, that um, Bruce is like a super genius. He's not just like smart, and he's not just like real smart. He's like embarrassingly smart. So those of us who like think we're smart, <laughs> we get around Bruce and it's like, man, I don't know nothing. I'm like Hobbes instead of Calvin. I mean, I'm just like, I got nothing when I get in the room with you. So <laughs> I'm just going to like stand in the corner and let you monologue it for a while so that I don't feel so dumb. Uh, seriously though, Bruce is a brilliant, brilliant guy on a lot of different fronts. Uh, you've authored several books. Uh, one of them is Letters to an American Christian. Um, one is called every square inch, an introduction to cultural engagement for Christians. Uh, you've written for a lot of online different sites, some of which are good and some of which are not. Um, but currently you are involved with an Institute that has something to do with public theology. What is that all about? Yeah. So I've just taken a job at the Kirby Lang center for public theology in uh, Cambridge in the UK. 
and I'll be uh, their American wing here in the U.S. Uh, doing uh, public theology from Raleigh and uh, Lake Forest, North Carolina. Uh, pretty excited about that um, opportunity. That is cool. And so, you know, their use of the phrase public theology, people ask about that all the time. What in the world is public theology? It's pretty simple in a sense. It's it's uh, the discipline of taking theological truths and applying them to the public sectors, mm-hmm. uh, different spheres of culture such as art, science, education, business, sports, uh, politics, and so forth and so on, and asking the question, how do those different spheres of culture relate to each other? Mm-hmm. In other words, what is the proper architecture of society? Um, how do they relate to each other, and then how does the Christian faith relate to each of them? I want to I want to posit something here, and that is that to do public theology well is different than preaching a Sunday morning sermon. Would you agree with that? Yes, very different. Good. We can keep going now. I'm not going to have to cut you off and like make this a two minute episode. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, uh, there are some similarities uh, when you're preaching on Sunday morning, but a, a pastor who stands on a pulpit has a very uh, uh, serious calling to open God's Word and teach what the Bible um, directly says out of a passage of Scripture. Um, public theology does something a, a little bit different because, um, you know, the Bible doesn't always speak directly into the different spheres of culture. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a, a manual or a handbook for art or science or politics. And so what we have to do is we have to look at patterns in Scripture uh, and patterns in history and put them together to see, you know, how has God created the world to function? Mm-hmm. And what is the purpose of something like politics or science or art? And the Bible usually speaks uh, more indirectly to those issues than directly. It's not like we're opening up a passage of Scripture and saying, well, here is the letter, letter Paul wrote on how to uh, interact in the political realm in 21st century America. Because Paul never wrote anything like that. Yeah. And so we're reasoning indirectly from Scripture um, when we're doing uh, public theology. So the contrast that, I, that I'm attempting to make there, and I think you're on it, is that a person can be a good preacher— a good pastor uh, can feed the flock well on Sunday morning and then take to social media and have zero idea really how to, how to well represent the, the, the beliefs and the teaching that might have been well represented on Sunday morning to that crowd might not be well represented in a more public forum where you've got different kinds of people that are listening and they're not all already convinced of much of the truths of what you're saying. What are some of the challenges of, I'm thinking kind of a Leslie Newbigin approach maybe, what are some of the challenges mm-hmm. of translating the, the Sunday morning where we, we're all basically with the same truth, We you know all the congregation mm-hmm. essentially believes the word, but then you're going outside and attempting to communicate those same truths in a more public setting about art or theology or politics or whatever it might be to a totally different group of people that aren't already bought into your presuppositions about truth and the nature of it. Yeah, you, you put that uh, really well. So a moment Thank ago, you. Did I get an A? I do was, I get an A? <laughs> you do. Okay. And I'll, I, awesome. I remember you, you said that you'd pay me uh, 25 bucks, but <laughs> say something nice to you. So if you will, just don't forget to send that check in the mail. <laughs> um, yeah, so I met, a moment ago I made a distinction uh, between sort of the method in public theology and in preaching from the pulpit, a little bit of a different method. And then you're, you're drawing attention, I think, to demeanor and communication, which is really important. Um, usually, most pastors, when they're um, standing in a pulpit and preaching on Sunday morning, are preaching to an audience of 80, 90 percent, sometimes 100 percent people who, who consider themselves Christians, 
and who trust the Bible. Mm. But when we do public theology, when we stand there and declare the gospel as a public truth, that Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and Caesar is not, and uh, that the Bible's narrative of the world is the true story of the whole world, and that CNN's narrative or Fox's narrative is not the true story of the whole world. When we do that, we're talking to, I don't know, 70, 80 percent of the people we're talking to probably don't agree with us on any number of things. And uh, I think you mentioned Leslie Newbigin. Um Leslie's a man, by the way, for everyone out there in <laughs> on commentary podcast land. The British, the British do that. They give uh, women's names to men. Oh and, man, uh, that's Dugan cold. Was a, it was a he was a, a great, a little man. He's like five two or five three, but a, a powerful uh, theologian. And he conceived of uh, public theology as sort of a, a missionary approach to culture. So under a missionary approach, if you're taking a given topic. Let's just say um, transgenderism, gender dysphoria. Well, a pastor might just sort of crisply declare the truth from Scripture that God creates people to have a specific gender, and that gender aligns uh, with biological reality, and that gender can't be transformed or changed. He might just state that crisply from the pulpit and have agreement already from everyone in the congregation Mm -hmm. or most of the people. When we're doing that in public, at least half the country shares a a markedly different worldview than we do. Mm -hmm. And so we want to take a missionary approach, usually, if we're trying to persuade them, which is we want to find common ground. What are some categories that I share with people who are um, in favor of transgender, gender reassignment surgeries, and so forth? What are some common categories or common concerns we have? Then how can I start from that area of, of common concern mm-hmm. or shared belief and start working from there to persuade them and pull them over to a, a more appropriate view of things. And that's a tricky task. Things are so divided in the U.S. that once you do that, if you try to find common ground with people who are different than you, you get accused of being a traitor or a sellout. Right. Um, and I think that's because our, our political leaders, even the highest office in the land, the presidency, our political pundits, our senators, um, haven't modeled to us how to persuade. Um, what they basically do is play to their base and state as sort of loudly and exaggeratedly and angrily as they can the things that their followers already believe. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great approach when you're trying to persuade people of a Christian view of things. Well, to take a, a brief aside on, on that specific note, uh, it's referred to as the permanent campaign, where every every pronouncement uh, is designed to firm up support for the next voting cycle that comes along. So every politician is always doing that because they're always thinking of the next election and they're rarely thinking of actually governing. It's a, always a campaign for re-election. So uh, that yeah. exacerbates that entire thing. So let's talk well, about I mean, it. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, that's why uh, Congress doesn't get anything done. Yeah. Because <laughs> all of them are looking at their next election and this is why executive power is used. This is why Bush and Obama and Trump and now Biden uh, make executive orders. Mm-hmm. It's one, of the, one of the main reasons they do, because Congress is so divided, so split, because they're campaigning, perpetually campaigning. They're so split, they can't make agreements and get things done. And uh, so put your finger on a, uh, a sore spot in our country, I think. Right. Um, so let's talk about a couple of uh, specific things 
that possibly um, you can illustrate how public theology would work uh, in these things. So uh, you, you wrote a book a while back called Letters to an American Christian, and in it you actually cover uh, a number of topics. And so I'm just going to pick a couple of these out at hand, uh, or at random, I should say, and talk about them. Um, so you say one chapter is called To Shave a Yak, Should I Be Concerned About the Environment? So we're in the middle of a prolonged discussion about climate change and or global warming, depending upon who is doing the talking. It depends on how they phrase it. Uh, now those those each of those phrases is now kind of loaded. People assume you're on one side or the other just by the terminology that you use to describe the situation. Um, does the scripture say anything about environmentalism? I mean, is there anything in there? Um, you know, on the third day God created Exxon, is there anything in the scriptures at all that give us an ability to speak publicly from a biblical worldview, a biblical thinking that has to do with how the world works and whether we need to try to protect, you know, the snail darter or things like that? Yeah, good question. And so, you know, the answer I would give is yes and no. Uh, Let me start with no. No, the Bible doesn't say anything directly about public policy in 21st century democratic republic just like it doesn't say much of anything directly on any topic about 21st century public policy in a democratic republic. What it does do, however, and this is the yes, is it does teach deep-level principles, and it does give an overarching story of the world that speak either, speaks either directly or indirectly to issues that we're debating in public policy. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, the, the Bible's doctrine of creation teaches that God created the world and then ordered it by means of his word. And that he values it, and that Christ, that this creation, Colossians says, actually um, uh, is held together by Christ. Right. And if Christ values it enough to hold it together, we should value it too. We shouldn't purposefully uh, uh, destroy or hurt or pollute um, the environment. Now, what that looks like in public policy is up for debate. Yeah. It's a very complicated, fraught with all kinds of difficulties. And the one thing, Americans, that we should be careful not to do is to just assume that because the Bible says that we should care for God's good creation, just assume that our political party's take is manifestly and obviously right. Right. <laughs> right? Because I think people on both sides of the aisle do care, uh, on, you know, on the right and on the left, about God's good world. But the implications for public policy, that's where they disagree. Mm-hmm. And we ought to be able to extend a little bit of grace to each other. And uh, in other words, let's not take a a page out of the playbook of our radio show hosts, TV commentators, and politicians. Let's not demonize everybody who believes differently than us. Let's uh, reach out and make the case to them for why they should see it more the way we do. So let's don't act like our politicians. Is that what you're saying? What did you say? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. Let's don't act like our politicians. Yeah, let's. Uh, I think that's a great rule of thumb. Uh, whatever they do, let's do the opposite. <laughs> Don't vote for politicians; it just encourages them. You know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh Ronald man! Ronald Reagan said that uh, he had come to realize that the uh, that politics is the second oldest profession, yeah, in world history, and and that it greatly resembles <laughs> the, the oldest oldest profession. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> there is too much truth in that. Um, so real quickly, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll head to a break in just a second. Uh, you talk about, um, immigration reform 
uh, for instance. So here's another situation where you've got a politically divided, you've got a politically divided legislative body, you've got a politically divided country, uh, and you've got, in many cases, politically divided or at least um, biblically divided, under, interpretively divided Christians over the issue of immigration. Of course, we're talking about in the United States. We're not extrapolating beyond our own borders for the moment. Um, so how can Christians, A, think about immigration in a way that transcends policy issues and then communicate with each other about these things? Okay, yeah, uh, great question. So immigration has divided our country, this topic, uh, several times in history. And um, it was uh, this, this issue is what caused the rise of paleo, what's called paleoconservatism uh, 20, 30 years ago, and then Trumpism. Uh, if we could use that as a, a um, sort of a description of a, a, a large stream of conservative thought the last five years or so. You know, so the thing that we should be able to agree on is that Scripture teaches that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God, therefore uh, worthy of uh, a level of dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. No matter what their skin color, no matter what their nationality, uh, no matter whether they're undocumented or documented, whether they're born or unborn, uh, all are worthy of being treated with a level of dignity and respect, we ought to be able to agree that when we talk about undocumented immigrants or um, people who wish to immigrate to the United States, we ought to be able to speak about them in categories that are not demeaning and degrading, but instead are honoring and uh, respectful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where we should be able to agree. We don't agree, obviously. There are a number of Christians who are demean, you know, demeaning and degrading in the way they talk about undocumented um Immigrants. Where we're not going to agree is how many, uh, you know, immigrants we think is wise for the United States to assimilate or take into our borders in a given year. And the Bible doesn't speak directly to that in any way. Right, right. The Bible was written for a different era. It wasn't a highly mobile era uh, where millions of people could move to the U.S. You know, in the space of a month, mm-hmm. you know, if they wanted to. If we just completely opened our borders, that would be, you know, in my opinion, unwise. Uh, partially disruptive of what little bit of cultural unity we have left. Um, on the other hand, I think, so that's one extreme is, in my opinion, is that people will say, well, the Bible says to, to love the sojourner and the alien, therefore open up our borders to anybody who wants to come to our country as many, as many as possible. I don't think scripture demands that. And I don't think it's wise. But on the other hand, you've got folks who view people who are culturally dissimilar as uh, beneath us in America and want to shut the borders entirely or almost entirely. Scripture doesn't demand that, and I don't think that's wise either. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing for our, our nation to be hospitable to the right kinds of folks, folks who are not uh, perpetual criminals, for example. We don't want to receive into our borders all of Cuba's criminals. What if they're, like, am- uh, what if they're, am- what if they're amateur criminals? What if they're not professional criminals, but they're amateur criminals? Um, if they're willing to break and enter your house uh, uh, for 50 bucks, I'd pay them to do it and consider them good people. No, I, you know, I, the reason I mentioned, uh, you know, perpetual or hardened criminals is that, you know, an undocumented immigrant has broken a law by coming here. Yeah. And so that is criminal in a sense, but I don't think that's the sort of crime that rules somebody out. Oh, you said perpetual. I thought here. you said professional. My bad. Oh, no, perpetual. Okay, my bad. 
Um, so we're going to go to break right quick. I'm talking to Bruce Ashford about uh, doing public theology well. Uh, we're going to come back and talk about some more stuff right after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20-ounce Coke one time a month. And you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor, supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. All right, back with Bruce Ashford, and we're still talking about public theology. We're going to focus for the remainder of this episode on a very specific thing that has uh, really been in the last news cycle on the evangelical interest side of things. So your average, you know, John, who's watching, uh, talking heads or even regular news is probably not picking up on much of this, but this has been a pretty big deal in a certain strand of evangelicalism. And that is the idea of Christian nationalism. So Bruce, I'm going to let you define, uh, or at least give a definition, a working definition of Christian nationalism. And then, uh, we'll just go from there. Okay. Well, I think if we're going to define Christian nationalism, I want to back up a tad and just talk about nationalism in general. Okay. Uh, it's a, a hotly debated definition, and if you go, for example, to the online Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you'll find eight or nine different brands of nationalism, and I think the word is used in—I'm going to give three categories. It's often used these days in three or four ways. One way uh, is to refer to just patriotism, and in that sense of the word, when people use the word that way— if what they're thinking of is just a healthy patriotism, which is appreciating what is good in our nation, being grateful to God that we're able to live here, then I think that's fine and healthy. That's not really nationalism, in, in my opinion, but the word is used that way mm -hmm. sometimes. It's kind of a civic nationalism, a respect for your nation, a healthy um, appreciation for what it has to offer. Another way that the word is used is to refer to economic interests that our nation— leaders should make policy more primarily to benefit Americans than they do to benefit other peoples of the world. Mm -hmm. So they should look out for the economic interests of people who are actually citizens of our country. So I don't think that's the essence of nationalism, even though the word is used to refer 
uh, to to this view that we, our leaders should look out for our economic interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's okay. I think our nation's leaders should. I think it's insane for them to care more about people who didn't elect them than about people who did. <laughs> they don't have a responsibility to the rest of the world to, to the same way they do to our own uh, citizens. Now, the third way that the word is used, I think, gets to the heart of what nationalism actually is. And uh, it, it views, this is a view that views our nation as inherently better than other nations and as the primary object of our affections. And so in this sense of the word, nationalism is an, is a, an idolatrous ideology. It takes the idea of the nation and elevates it to the number one spot as the, the primary ideal toward which we bend our lives and to which our lives should conform. And uh, I think that's, that's idolatrous. Only God should, should take that position. And yet you have academic proponents. You've got some political leaders and many Americans who probably buy into that uh, view uh, politically. And then Christian nationalism is a subset of that view, uh, usually. Um, and it can, it often takes the, the form of a, you know, a Christian saying that we're God's chosen country, just like Israel used to be. Now the United States is. And that's bad biblical theology. Um, the, the corollary to Israel is the church. Right. You know, that's God's people. The United States is not God's people. Let's drill, it's a let, group of people. Let's drill down on that, yeah. that thing for a little bit farther. <clears throat> so in your definition, um, you, and I realize that we're, we're working with some loose categories here, so I'm not like trying to pin you down yep. on something. I'm working from okay. your yep. suggestion um, yep. that there's this idea that kind of uh, either stated or implied or just kind of understood as an operating principle that America has replaced Israel or is as chosen in the same way that Israel was. Now, let's take that about a half a step back to where a person who's a believer who really feels very strongly about the United States and believes that God has a special place. And we go back to this origin kind of myth that the, you know, with the founding fathers and the role of Providence and all these kinds of things. And there's, there's this beyond just these men were influenced by scripture, which I would agree with that. And I would also agree that any number of them, and I don't have a number in mind, but any number of them were actually authentic born-again Christians. They actually had received Christ. They professed faith in, in Jesus, not just uh, kind of an ethereal God, you know, the deity of Thomas Jefferson, not that. But that a lot of these guys were actual, authentic believers in Jesus. But there's kind of this story that comes up that God— uh, that the United States is special in the sense, maybe if not just like Israel, it's certainly special in the sense that God created and shepherded and birthed the United States and that we have some kind of special role that's different and unique from other countries in the world because of that origin uh, origin story. Would that qualify in your mind as Christian nationalism? Yeah, maybe. It's loosely defined. Um I mean, I guess my response would be something like this. Scripture has not revealed to us that the United States is specially chosen by God. We have to at least start there. We don't have any revelation <laughs> of that extent, whereas Wait, the dude, we're going to mount up in wings as eagles, and the United States symbol is an eagle. Can you not even read your Bible? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I sit corrected. Uh, uh, 
But, uh, you know, I, I think what the founding fathers did is uh, they took a basically Jewish and Christian worldview, a moral framework, a transcendent moral framework. Even the, those of them who, you know, may not have been believers, they took that and their common sense and the best new political philosophy of their day, Locke's kind of uh, version of his classical liberalism. Mm-hmm. They put it all together and came away with a really good document. I, I, I think that the United States Constitution is a historically brilliant and good-hearted and good-willed document. I love it. I'm actually very grateful. I was born in the United States, grateful for the many good things our nation has offered. I want to be very careful, though, however, to, to not speak with confidence that God has chosen our country to do this or that, or mm-hmm. that our country is inherently superior to another nation, that our nation's people are inherently superior. We're not. We're all fallen fallen sinners, in it, and our 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 nation, just like every other nation, we've got cultural institutions and traditions and aspects of our heritage that are warped by sin and idolatry. And so the way to keep from being nationalist in the idolatrous sense of the word, the best way is to have a healthy recognition of where our shortcomings are, and that will remind us that our nation is not God, that it's not inherently superior um, in God's eyes to other nations, and, uh, and to work to reform our own nation to reform our cultural institutions in the way they need to be reformed. In other words, to continually be reforming our nation to, um, if the Lord gives us the ability to do so, to steer it uh, true north as much as we can. So is so I want to push on this a little more because it is, uh, it, it is out there and we're, we're always talking about it. At least some of us are. Um, <clears throat> so, you you offered like loose and and I, everybody who's listening, please you know don't run off and say, well, Bruce Ashford said this and it was hard and fast because we're talking in general categories so that we can converse about this in a limited amount of time. <laughs> this is not this is not your master's level seminary class. We're having a conversation and we're trying to work some of these out to where we can get them into the broader conversation in a productive way. I think that's fair. Um, Patriotism versus nationalism. I want to drop back to that for just a second. And I want to tell you some of the ways that I've been thinking about this, and you feel free to correct me and change my A to an F, or at least a D minus. So uh, I don't know um, about all the other countries in the world and how they, uh, how nationalistic some certainly are. And at different periods of time, some are more than others. I would argue that the Japanese in World War II were probably much more nationalistic than the Japanese at other points in time in their, in their history. Um, right. Maybe the same thing, you know, once the Soviet union was broken up, the Belarusians weren't really proud of the USSR. They were proud of being Belarusians. Um, so there's different, some of these things ebb and flow, but when I think of patriotism, um, I think of, you know, the Olympics uh, I think of, you know, national parks, the, the things about your country that are pleasing, that are a blessing. Um, you know, each country has kind of a national ethos. Um, I talked to someone about this recently and Americans, generally speaking, are generous. You know, we give, we support causes. Uh, we give money to, to people on street corners that we don't even know. Uh, so there is a, you know, there's a generosity that's kind of inherent in being American. So there's all these things uh, that are good and that are important. Um, so that to me is kind of patriotism. You know, I want to, I want, 
when we when it comes to the Olympics, every other country in the world can fall off the map. I want every American to win, unless they're just a scuzz and I want them to lose. But other than that, I want to see America win. I want to, you know, I want the national anthem played at the podium. I just want all. In, I'm all in for America during, during the Olympics. Uh, that's kind of my patriotism. W- once we get beyond that, <clears throat> uh, once I get beyond that, let me say it that way. Um, I'm thinking New Testament terms where God creates the church as a holy nation. And his reference to all the other nations of the world is that they're like dust on the scales. Um, the islands are, you know, almost nothing, the, the mountains, whatever the hills, and that God's emphasis is on a single singular nation called the church. Now I'm going to, for the sake of argument, I will bring Israel into that and say that Israel as an entity has a role in God's economy, uh, and that the church, which transcends both Jew and Gentile and transcends every national and demographic border is God's holy nation. And that Peter, uh, illustrates God's purpose in that in the sim by drawing a similarity between how Moses consecrated Israel that Jesus consecrated the church um, so that every other nationalistic or pa- or even patriotic tendency is subordinate to our love for the church as the holy nation that God has ascribed in this era. So for me personally, um, it I struggle with a lot of different expressions of nationalistic fervor because I have this sensitivity of how easy it is to transpose the allegiances between those kingdoms. So can you address that a little bit and tell me if I'm like off my rocker and I'm really, you know, a communist? You know, that's, that's good stuff. I want to address it biographically if if I can. Sure. One of the things I'm really grateful for uh, with my parents is if I try to, just trying to put it in words right now, I, I got the sense from the time I was very young, five, six years old, you know, earliest memories as a kid, that my parents had a deep desire to see Christ's lordship uh, extended to every person in the world, to see the victories of the gospel, uh, for God's church to be morally pure and to love him and to show the world uh, the truth and goodness and beauty of the Christian faith and of Christ himself. And that was a real passion of theirs. And I grew up, therefore, with that as a real passion, Mm. that um, I really wanted God's church to be healthy and to be living in conformity with the gospel. I wanted people to have their sins forgiven. And that should be the deepest desire of every Christian. I agree. And then very secondary to that are other allegiances, um, uh, such as allegiance to our nation. Um, And one of the ways I think we see that that's not always the case here in the States is that a given, I could go and preach in a given pulpit and commit Trinitarian heresy, and many or most of the people in the church wouldn't blink or even know it, yeah, much less get upset. They'd still want you to sign but their Bible I, after you were done. Yeah, but if I were to dis, say something they disagreed with on a, a matter of uh, public policy that was uh, you know contested, uh, you know, they'll become... Many people would come absolutely apoplectic, yeah. storm out of a service, yeah. or never come back again. And that shows you where people's heart is. What it is that makes them the angriest or makes a person the happiest 
It's a thing in their life that's an idol. Man, see, I think that I think that is so critical. I think that is just. I mean, I don't want to get into like judging people, but I think that's just a real good demarcator. Uh, for us to think about not only ourselves, but how, how folks do respond to those things. That's so good. I, can I mention, I want to mention an example. No, we got you a few can't. No, no, yes, we do. I'm just kidding you. Okay. <laughs> so I attended a church service about 15 years ago, uh, in which it happened to be the 4th of July. I was out of town uh, speaking. It was in another state, and I spoke at an event on a Saturday night. And the next morning I got up to go to church, and I tried to find a church. Mm-hmm to go to, and the church I happened to go to is a pretty big church here in the South, and happened to be the 4th of July, and when I walked in, I remember I walked in through a side door, not even the front door, right. and they had an American flag carpet rolled out, and they had girls with uh, batons twirling them, majorettes, and so it was a big deal at this church, and the worship service, um, as people were walking in, and in, in the time right before before the beginning of the service, they had on the two TV screens, they had two big TV screens, they had footage of our, our nation's military firing weapons and so forth. And then I know we sang a number of patriotic hymns, and then a testimony was given by a war hero, and he gave a lot of stories about his time in Vietnam, and then at the end gave the gospel. And um, I could tell that people were really passionate about this. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, it fired them up. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with and there's everything right with actually honoring veterans and uh, honoring the military for defending us. I just think we need to be really careful in a worship service that's supposed to focus on God himself Yeah. Uh, that we allow a service to be hijacked, Yeah. where the, the, the central object of affection is not God, uh, but the nation. And so that's amplified on the 4th of July, but you can see it in lesser forms and lesser ways on other Sundays during the week. I had a very similar experience, <clears throat> same type of thing. I was on vacation, decided to go to church. It was July the 4th, went to the local church that I could actually walk to from where we were staying and went in. It wasn't quite American flag carpet and majorettes. Majorettes in the church is weird anyway, but <clears throat> uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't that. But across the front, and the front, mind you, was this enormous kind of rock wall with the baptismal cut out of the middle of it. And draped across this enormous rock wall was this enormous American flag, like one you'd see at a Dodge dealer that would stand out in a hurricane, you know, uh, that size American flag across the front of the auditorium. And they had a baptismal service. And the optics were not that the person was being baptized into Christ. The optics were the person was being baptized under a, a, a national flag. Now, Granted, they didn't say, I baptize you in the name of the president, vice president, and secretary of state. They didn't say that. But the optics were, this is America. This is the most important thing. And by the way, you're being baptized. When realistically, baptism is an allegiance to a different kingdom altogether. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I forgot to say the church that I went to, they had an evening service. And in the evening service, they had a singing flag. If you've ever seen uh, at Christmas, sometimes I'll have a Christmas tree that people, the choir can walk up into. This had a four-tier American flag. Oh, my and word. And I think the optics, yeah, the, like you're saying, the optics, it's a good thing to be grateful to God that he put you where he put you and to be grateful for the good things about our nation. But 
we need to be very careful, not just with literal symbolic things like a flag, but in the way we communicate in a church service that this service is about God and the special nation that he's chosen, which is the people of God, the church, and how God will cause this church to triumph. He won't cause this nation necessarily to triumph. I certainly would be happy if we were not defeated or taken captive. That's not what I want, but I'm just saying that the thing that Scripture promises and that he wants us to pull for with every ounce of our being is for the victories of the gospel to be seen through the victories of God's people, yeah. through the, the, the church. Well, Bruce, thanks for hanging out, man. This is good stuff. Um, among other things that you can find, Bruce has written Letters to an American Christian, published by B&H, uh, maybe three years ago, four years ago with that? Yeah, something like that. And he'll be doing more public theology with this new uh, position. Where, where is your content going to be coming out? Are you going to be doing a podcast? Or are you just going to be uh, you're writing for a website well, anywhere? What's going on? Yeah, I'll be, I'm, a, I'm going to be a regular columnist for First Things Magazine. And I'll write occasionally for uh, Fox News Opinion, Daily Signal, Daily Caller. And then you can find all of that and my uh, blog post at bruceashford.net. And um, I've got a YouTube channel, and uh, you can access that, just Bruce Ashford. All right. Thanks, dude. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcasts.